This is Your Kick-Ass Life Podcast, episode R4, with guest Holly Whitaker. All links and resources you hear on this podcast can be found by going to yourkickasslife.com forward slash R4. This is the Your Kick-Ass Life Podcast with Andrea Owen, a no BS guide to self-help and badassery. Because ladies, let's face it, life's too short for it to not kick ass. And here's your host, the girl who serves it up straight with a side of crazy, Andrea Owen. Hello there, ass kickers. Welcome to another edition of the Recovery Series podcast. I'm so glad that you're here, and I hope that you have enjoyed the last few episodes. If you have missed them, there's three so far in the series that you have missed. The easiest way to not miss them is to subscribe either on iTunes or Stitcher or whatever magical app that you use to listen to your podcast episodes. I have a one quick announcement for you before we get into today's interview with Holly, and that is this coming Monday, October 24th, I am opening registration for an in-person retreat. It is based on my other baby, The Self-Love Revolution, that I co-host with my best friend and colleague, Amy Smith. We run the master's course, and that is going to be live. Here's the thing. It will sell out, so if you want in, don't wait. Basically, it's a four-day retreat here in North Carolina. It's in the city of Asheville. It's all-inclusive, and we are working on the very important topics of worthiness, your self-talk, forgiveness, and emotions. It's going to be amazing. So if you're sure that you don't want to miss it, it's coming up on Monday. We're opening doors for it. It is going to, we're going to cap it at 20 women. If you don't receive my emails and want to make sure that you hear about it first, you can simply text the word kickass, it's all one word, to 444-999 to make sure that you are the very first to know about the retreat before it sells out. All right, so let's get on with it. Let me tell you a little bit about today's guest. Holly. Holly Whitaker is the founder of Hip Sobriety, which aims to provide a modern, holistic, accessible, and desirable path to sobriety and to remove the stigma associated with addiction and sobriety. She's also the creator of Hip Sobriety School, an online program that helps individuals build holistic paths to recovery as either a complement or alternative to traditional modalities. She is also the co-host of Home Podcast, a podcast dedicated to the raw, real, and necessary discussions we must have in order to not only recover from addiction, but to recover our best selves in a world that is increasingly in need of each of us to wake up to what we are. It is Holly's belief that recovery is a privilege, not a consequence, and sobriety is a proud and empowering life choice. And without further ado, here is Holly. Hey there, Ask Kickers. Welcome to another episode of the podcast. I'm so glad that you're here. I'm so glad that you're back, even though this might be the first episode that you're ever tuning into. If you are new or whether you are a seasoned listener, you probably know that this is a particularly unique episode that I'm doing. It's a one part in a 10 part series all about recovery, 
specifically from alcoholism. So if you heard my story on the very first episode that I did, I told you about my own sobriety. I have five years now that I'm very proud of being sober and entering recovery. And I wanted to get people on to talk about their stories and how they stay sober, what recovery looks like for them. And I have hand-selected some people that I know from the online world. And one of them is Holly Whitaker. Holly, thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. So excited. I am too. I am too. So what I've been doing with everyone is something that you know, I'm asking people to be vulnerable, which I know you have no problem being <laughs> <laughs> given the work that you do. And just tell, let's start with your story. What has your relationship with alcohol been like? And tell us when you decided it was time to quit. Yeah. So it's so interesting. I feel like I've told this story so many times. And it's funny because when I hear other people that I really looked up to when I was first moving through this and I would hear their same story over and again, I would love to find these different bits and pieces. So I'm going to try and tell it maybe a little bit differently than I've told it and add in some stuff around it. So for me, my relationship with alcohol, I started drinking when I was 15, like regularly drinking in high school, partying. And I would say that from a really early place with it, I had a shitty relationship with it. And by that, I mean, I drank to, I drank to escape. I drank to be something that I was not. I drank because I was uncomfortable in my skin. I drank to fit in. You know, for me, it was kind of this like invitation into this world that I had felt really, I Isolated from. I mean, it went from, it's so funny because it went from like me and my girlfriend, you know, staying like my best friend and I on Friday and Saturday nights, you know, in her bedroom playing card games. And then all of a sudden you're just kind of thrown into this world where you're smoking and you're drinking and you're making out with boys and, you know, getting felt up and all this stuff. And so, you know, for me, I didn't handle it very well early on. And I really kind of took on this like party girl persona. Mm-hmm. I went to every party, you know, I made out with a lot of guys. I would say I blacked out, you know, a fair amount in high school. And it was kind of one of those things that went through me with college. I still was in that like party blackout thing in college. And I still had that really, you know, relationship with it where more, not so much that I was drinking, you know, by myself or, but more that I drank more than others. I felt it was more important to me possibly than it was to other people. And also I did the blackout thing and I would go back and forth in this as I like moved through my career. But also I was just, you know, to kind of like sum the whole thing up, it wasn't, you know, we were talking about this ahead of time. We were talking about, you know, comorbidity and eating disorders. And it wasn't just alcohol. Like, I think that's like such an important part to understand is that, you know, what it looked like for me was just like, I was a mess and I had felt like a mess for a very very long time. Mm -hmm. I had suffered from depression when I was really young. I remember like, I remember, you know, riding in a car with my friend when I was 15, she was 16 and just saying, don't you ever feel like, you know, life is pointless and her saying no. And me really recognizing that I had like some pretty deep depression. And also, you know, I started, I you know, would say I had a bout of anorexia around the time I turned 18 and dropped a bunch of weight, but then moved into bulimia. You know, I started smoking pot at a really young age and I started, you know, I smoked in the mornings and I, you know, cut school to smoke pot. I'd started smoking cigarettes when I was 15. And I had really, really, I'd say really bad relationships with men, meaning I was really I would have sex to gain, not have sex. I gave a lot of sexual favors in order to gain some sort of acceptance. And that's why I thought you got in was that you gave men everything they wanted. Mm -hmm. So I had this like 
all of this swirling around me. And yet I continued to move towards, you know, I'm also really driven. So with all this stuff, I continued to move towards, I was, you know, I thought for me that the way out was just to be really successful and to accumulate things and to, you know, and to, you know, have a good relationship with a man. And so for me, I had all this stuff and it kind of felt like I took all this stuff along with me as I graduated college. And as I moved into my career, I worked at a big four accounting firm and I was like top, like I was like Miss Accountant. I was an intern at Deloitte for two years and I was like the treasurer. You know what I mean? I was like, I was just always highly motivated, really successful. Yet I was like carrying all this stuff with me. Yeah. Um, The term that came to me was like, it sounds like a house of cards getting ready to collapse. Yeah, it did. And not only that, it was just, it was consuming because I always knew that I had all this stuff and there were parts of it that were in the forefront. You know, there were like people, you know, knew I liked my good wine or, you know, people knew that I would go out and drink with the boys. And, but at the same time, it was kind of like, Oh, the credit card debt, Oh, the bulimia, Oh, the, you know, all this stuff was just kind of like this, like this stuff underneath. And at some point, it started to turn into, I broke up with a boyfriend when I was, oh God, probably 2006. And that's really when this, like, when I would, that's like, that was when I started to, and not regularly, but that was when I started to, you know, my roommate was out of town and I got drunk by myself. I just remember running to the freezer and taking like three shots of vodka really quick while I was by myself. And that was really when this kind of like other things started to emerge. And that would not be all pervasive. That was just this like thing that, you know, this thing that I did a couple of times. But as I start to, you know, move up in my career, really successful, this other stuff started to also get bigger. And when I landed this role at this company in 2009, and it was like, I mean, it was funny because before I had been looking for a break and I'd been looking for kind of an easy job. And then I jumped into this role and it was at this really blooming startup and it was kind of like sky is the limit. And I had this boss that I love and who's been really supportive of all this, but my boss at the time, he would, you know, we would both stay up all night. We would compete to see who was working until, you know, 3am or 2am. And during this, like moving into this role, I also broke up with a boyfriend and I kind of had this, like, it's almost like this open season on like being alone and also like having really, you know, starting to focus on nothing, but being successful. And I got into this habit of, I would go home on Friday night and I would have like to close, like for instance, the first time it really, I really did this. I had to close, I was the, you know, head of our accounting department and other departments, but I had to close the month and it was a mess. And I just remember going home on Friday night, running and getting a six pack and then, you know, and doing this like dance with smoking pot, smoking cigarettes, drinking caffeine, drinking beer in order to kind of hit this sweet spot so I could sit and work for, you know, 40 hours and three days or, you know, it was just, Mm -hmm. so that kind of, it was this like perfect storm of like having this opportunity to do nothing but work and also be as successful as I wanted to be, you know, coupled with breaking up with somebody and having my heart shattered and really like kind of giving up on this idea that I was going to get married and have children thinking like my only thing was to just be this like career woman. And then coupled with getting into a really destructive relationship after that, And so for me, my, it just started to like, you know how this goes. It's just like, 
you cross a line and then you cross another line and then you cross another line. And before you know it, and you keep telling yourself like, oh, I'm not, you know, like I'll clean this up tomorrow. And so for me, I've talked about it before. It's kind of being this bulimic lifestyle where I would go on like benders and work from home. And then I'd wake up to chaos and then I'd say, oh, I'm going to just clean this up. And then I would, you know, I would have my cleaners come over and I would, you know, throw out all the bottles and all the trash and I would just like say, okay, I'm cleaning this up and I'm not doing this again. And then I would go for a couple of days and I would keep, you know, on the straight and narrow and I would, you know, maybe only have two drinks when I went out or whatever. And then, but, and then I blow it again. And so I got to this point where I just started doing really scary things, you know, like really scary things. Um, and I was out of my mind and I knew I was out of my mind and I was out of control and I knew I was out of control. And I, you know, like I just, I remember like showing up for my aunt's funeral in Fresno and going home and being so puffy and just knowing people could see that I was puffy and knowing that I was that girl, like Mm. from a bulimic binge and from all the drinking. And I knew like I wasn't hiding it as good as I used to. And I also knew there was just like things that started, like I started to do things like if I ran out of pot and I couldn't get a hold of my drug dealer, I would walk around the tenderloin and look to buy pot from anybody. And I'd be drunk while I was doing this. And I just remember like thinking I'm so close to not, you know, running from my Knob Hill apartment down here to look for a pot. I'm so close to living down here. That's like, this is like, it just started to dawn on me that this is how it goes. This is how people lose everything. And I'm not that different and I'm not that far away from it. And so the breaking point came kind of around the time, the summer of 2012, I went to Costa Rica with a friend and I, oh God, I just, I left my apartment, I hired somebody to redecorate my apartment and I left her with my credit card. I left my cat with her. I left drunk and I show up in Costa Rica and I just kind of drink my way through this trip for two weeks. And I'm like getting drunk and I'm sobbing to my friend at nights about just like broken sobbing, you know, just like I'm so messed up. And I told her on that trip, if I was still drinking like this, when we got back that I needed like that, you know, my friends should like host an intervention and you were inviting your friends to host an intervention for you. Like if that isn't a cry for help, I don't know what. And she brushed it off. She thought it was funny because also, you know how this goes too. I lived in San Francisco, first of all, which is just a heavy drinking culture, but also Mm -hmm. I surrounded myself with people that drank like me. Yeah. And why wouldn't you? (laughs) And so she, you know, I just remember one time like this particular friend, her and her boyfriend broke up and she came over to my apartment with a, you know, red cup full of whiskey. And she was just like my friends and I sat around and she talked about how she was just having an alcoholic phase. And I do remember thinking, oh, there are alcoholic phases. Like, okay, like, good. Somebody's talking about this. So we can have these, like, you know, so we can't, like, it's acceptable to have alcoholic phases. Like a goth phase. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So I was, like, relieved. Like, okay, this is normal, you know. And so, but I knew my life was going down the toilet really fast. I was, like, it was funny because I was just holding on. I was waiting for, like, the company to IPO. And I kept on during this trip, too. I had this, the man I had been in and out of a relationship with was out of a relationship. It's still connected to it. I was just telling her look, oh, he'll take care of me. Like if I really need this, he'll give me money for this or he'll like, or he better give me money for the, you know what I mean? I was just in this, I was just such a different person. It's so hard to go back. I was just a totally different person. And so I come back from this trip and then that was like July, 2012. And then things get worse. And it, I kind of had this breaking point in September where I, you know, threaten to quit my job. I take a week off. I go to the man that, you know, I'm in this relationship with. And I ask him, I basically, he's the first person I really tell 
I have a drinking problem and I have an eating disorder. And because my eating disorder was just out of control at that time too. And then that didn't go so well. And then I just kind of came to the conclusion I would have to fix it. I went and talked to a doctor about it. There was no help in healthcare. I really had this naive thought that like, well, actually that came before talking to him, but I had this naive thought that like my insurance card would just fix this or like, it was just like, there would be magical help or like there was an easy way out. Like that was what I kind of thought I was looking for this like easy way out to go fix it. And there was no easy way out to go fix it. There wasn't. And so I had this like encounter where like, well, anyway, I hit rock bottom. I mean, like for me, I hit my own rock bottom in October, 2012. And I just kind of, I woke up from one of those benders and I, you know, I did the thing, which is I, you know, dropped to my knees and I asked for help. Mm -hmm. And it was after a bender. And when I say it was after a bender, it was after like holding myself up in my apartment for days, being at the point where I was too tired to actually do my laundry. My bed didn't have sheets on it. I mean, it was just like me sleeping on a mattress. My apartment was just really like I hadn't taken the trash out and I was also binging and purging a lot. So I had a lot of food, like food, like a lot of like order and food. And like there was a flies in my apartment mm-hmm. and my whole night table was just covered in, I still have it. I should get rid of that damn thing. My nightstand was like just covered in ash. I would smoke a lot of I'd either smoke spliffs or, you know, pack pipes with tobacco and pot. Like my bathroom was just like plastered with puke and it was just, and then I was like a weekday morning and I was supposed to go into work. I was mm-hmm. supposed to lead a meeting and I just had that point where I just couldn't keep it up. And I, you know, and it was just like kind of like snapping out of a nightmare. And I asked, you know, I, I asked God for help. And so that was, I mean, that was for me, that was kind of, how it went was that morning, it just started to, I've written about this and this is really important because for me in that moment of actually falling on my knees and and screaming, like, I can't do this anymore. Mm -hmm. Like I cannot, and I need help. That was for me, like the moment that I feel like I actually allowed the things to happen, to take me to the things that would heal me. Like, I feel like that opened the gates for me to find what I needed. It was this complete and total surrender. And from there, it was, you know, it was just being, you know, led to one, you know, from one thing to the next thing to the next thing. And it just took off from there. And that was where the healing began for me was, is it's like the, it's like the low point on the chart. Mm-hmm. Wow. Who girl? You said I could talk for 50 minutes. I didn't tell you <laughs> I could talk for 50 minutes. Because that's what it takes. Like you can't sum up a story like that in well, three minutes. No, you know? no, you can't. And that, and even there, I feel like I'm, it's clearly missing a lot of the vital stuff. Oh, you could have told that story for like 90 minutes easily. I'm sure that there's more that's important, that's imperative to the story. And there's so many important parts of course that I want to touch on. But the last thing I think that you said was that piece about surrender. And I think that it's one of those topics that I think looks really different for every alcoholic that's ever gotten sober, you know, whether they've had their day one a hundred times or whether they've just had one day one. So can you say a little bit more about the surrender? Yeah. Well, I think for me, I mean, my first blog, my blog is now called Hip Sobriety, but my first blog was called Little Miss Surrendered. Here's what it was for me, everything in my life, I had forced, I was in control. And I thought I could do all of this stuff. Do you know what I mean? Like, I thought I could do everything. And I thought everyone should do everything my way. And it was a matter of relying on myself and thinking that I could pull myself out of this. And I knew what was best. And, and so for me, 
it was a matter of relinquishing control and saying, I don't know. I, I just don't. I don't know what to do. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm lost and I actually need help. Mm-hmm. And inviting that in instead of saying, I got this. I can handle it. No problem. Like, you know, like don't question whether or not I can do this. It was, oh God, I just need help. I just okay. cannot yeah. do this anymore. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, yeah. And I, yes, I've been there and not just with my drinking. I've been there in relationships. And for me, I don't know if it was like this for you, but, and I've made it no secret to my listeners that control and surrender are the things that I wrestle with on a daily basis. And it's a constant reminder to let go. And for me, a lot of it, the learning has been in self-trust in trusting myself that I can kind of walk through life and walk through the fire and walk through the weeds and be okay on the other end and trusting help. And, you know, and and also it's like the help isn't going to be perfect every single time. You know, the person's response isn't going to be what we need. You know, we might have to find different resources and things like that. But if we just trust that we'll be okay, I think that's a huge part of it. Does that make sense? Yeah, well, that is, I mean, yes, it makes absolute and perfect sense. And I think it's a matter of trying. It's not about not trying. It's about giving, it's a, it's about walking through, right, it's about walking through the fire to save your life. But it's mm-hmm. also about not forcing things that are not working. Right. And to kind like of trying, go with what. over and over again. Right. And, but to also just to see and also working with what's given to you, right? Instead of resisting what's yes. given to you, actually working with what's given to you. There's my, one of my coaches said, there are no blocks on the path. The blocks are the path. And like working with the obstacles is actually the thing that's helping you, you know, like that's helping you. And it's just a matter of this. It's just not playing God anymore, right? Mm -hmm. Like actually not playing God anymore and actually working with your life instead of resisting your life. And so many things. And I could go on about that. So, but. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Well, I, I do want to I do want to have time to talk to you about Alcoholics Anonymous because we've talked about it on a couple of – well, we might have talked about it on every one of these so far. And as I said before, I don't speak for AA. Lord is all we know it speaks for AA. But I want to talk about it. And, yeah. Because it's 2016. <laughs> we need to start talking yeah. about it. Yeah. So tell right? us your feelings about it. And what was your experience? So I had, it was suggested to me early on and I absolutely, absolutely didn't want to do it. Like it just, to me was the thing I didn't want. It was just the thing I didn't want to do. What was your resistance? I wasn't an alcoholic. Okay. Yeah, <laughs> that was one. No, right? <laughs> I wasn't one of them. That's what I said. I wasn't. I wasn't that bad. I was only going to sleep with three bottles of Jameson a night. No, but it was. It just was like, oh, I'm not there yet. It was really that. It was, I'm not there yet. And my way into recovery was, I mean, even though I was like, I can't do this, I can't, you know, like, the, like I had that surrender moment. It wasn't like I was like, I'm going out to get help. Today, it was more the way in for me was I had, I was babysitting one of my friends. He's a doctor or for, for his kids. He's a doctor and he was talking about somebody else possibly having borderline personality disorder. And when he said that, I was like, oh my God, that's, I think that's what's wrong with me. Even though I had no idea what it was, then I went and I looked it up and it was just, I was, I met all the diagnostic criteria essentially. And so one of the things that it said was you cannot drink. If you have borderline personality disorder, it is strongly advised to stop drinking like immediately because it will worsen the condition. And so 
I bought a book, I bought like a couple books on borderline personality disorder that night, but I also bought a book called The Easy Way to Control Alcohol as by Alan Carr. And it was for me, so just to be clear, I wasn't like, oh my God, I've got to stop drinking. I've got a problem with drinking. It was, oh my God, I have a mental illness and that says I cannot drink. And that made it much more palatable for me Mm -hmm. to actually address my drinking. And so from what what I read on your blog, it sounds like you wanted to understand it before you were ready to quit. Or was that like kind of during your quitting. Like you wanted to kind of like hack into the science behind addiction. Am I right? No, no, no. I wanted to know everything. I always want to know everything about everything. Mm -hmm. Like that's how I operate. I, you know, I worked in healthcare before and you better believe I'd read like every book on, you know, like I knew exactly what was happening with Obamacare and exactly what was happening with American healthcare. And that's me. If I'm in something, I want to know everything about it. And so I wanted to know everything about borderline personality disorder at that time. When it came to alcohol, I just wanted to stop drinking. Mm -hmm. I knew I had to stop drinking. And so I, because of the, like, there was just that innate knowing. I told myself it's because of borderline personality disorder, but that was also an easier way for me to actually say, I can't drink anymore. (laughs) Were you having a hard time with the label of alcoholic? Well, I, that'll come up. That'll come next. So, cause I didn't even consider it to be honest. Like that was like the worst case scenario was that I would be an alcoholic. Mm-hmm. That was like, that was of course, like I think anybody who has any form of problem drinking or who knows that they have a bad relationship with alcohol fears that word, right? Yeah. Because it's been painted to us. <laughs> nobody as, like, wants to be once. <laughs> nobody wants to be an alcoholic. Right. And so it's like, once you like you do everything to not be in that group, you do mm-hmm. everything to not be in that group. Right. And I had, you know, so of course I didn't want to be an alcoholic, but I wouldn't say that that was what I was playing with at the time. I would say like to go back and it's kind of hard to go back. It's a much different time, but I wanted, I knew I had to quit drinking and I didn't know how to quit drinking. And when I knew like for me, like it wasn't AA, like that was just a non-starter. And so I found this book called The Easy Way to Control Alcohol. And I was like, sweet, there's an easy, and I had used Alan Carr, you know, for like smoking and it was so many people had used Alan Carr to quit smoking. And I was like, oh, awesome. You know, there's this effective way to control alcohol. And then of course, what the book says is the only way to control alcohol is if you don't use it. And for two weeks after that, so I read it, it took me about two weeks to read the book. And it was just like one of those times where it just like, I started to look around me because you still drink while you read this book. And it just, it, it changes your subconscious. It's really, really like valuable book and it's out of print. So I had this moment, these like different moments in that time. And one night it was just, I went out with one of my girlfriends and she got super drunk and I didn't. And she just acted, she was just off. She wouldn't get into a cab and she walked home by herself and like was texting me all night long. It was just this thing where, and I had this moment as she's not getting into the cab, as she's being a total jerk to me. I have this moment of, you know, oh my God, I'm in my, you know, I'm in my early thirties. Like I'm too old for this. I can't mm-hmm. do that. I cannot keep doing this as I was reading this book. And then I went to a wedding that weekend and I was red and inflamed from the residue alcohol. I also had sex with a guy I didn't like that Friday night. Like it just was kind of like this, I don't want to do this anymore. And this is what this book does is it just basically tells you drinking is awful and lame. Don't do it anymore. And so when I quit the first time, I was really stoked on it. I was not dreading it. I was so excited because it just kind of was this like, it was almost just like 
it was completely, it flipped my world. It mm-hmm. basically made me not want to drink. It was like the blinders were off and I could see alcohol for what it was and I wanted to have nothing to do with it. And that would remain pretty consistent. Like that has not changed, even though I drank again. But I drank again about 60 days later at a Christmas party. And then from there, I started, that was when I really started working my recovery. And then when I quit again, I quit on April 1st or March 31st. I, you know, drank at a company event a couple weeks later. And then I came back to San Francisco from this like thing in Austin. And I went to Alcoholics Anonymous the next day because it was at that point where I knew and like I had stopped and I had started again. And that terrified me. It terrified me. I did not want to. What terrified me the most was thinking that I was going to be that person that was always relapsing Mm -hmm. and always struggling with it and going in between not drinking and drinking. It was just, it was terrifying. That person at the meetings who's always like, well, guys, I drank again last night. And everyone just kind of like nods. It's all right. We're glad you're here. That person. Right. Right. And I, and I didn't even know what that person was. I just knew that they existed just because you see it on TV. There's Mm -hmm. always, you know, like there's always, you know, the person that's made it, you know, 10 years and they show up at somebody's house drunk and then, you know, and then everyone's very disappointed, whatever. I had this picture in my mind, I was going to be that person. And so I went to an AA meeting and also I have to like explain too that Alan Carr's book is not very like, it's not like (laughs) pro Alcoholics Anonymous to say the least. It kind of, it doesn't tear it apart. Part, but it does kind of gives you a different perspective on addiction, a much different perspective than what's in the rooms. So when I went into the rooms, even though I needed that, that was what I needed. I needed to go and find people. I had been doing this all on my own. I didn't know, like I knew two people that had struggled with it. My friend's dad and another friend's fiance at the time knew two people that had struggled with it and talked to both of them. They both had done AA and it just felt like this, like, to be honest, it really also felt like this very like sobering thing to do. No pun intended, Mm -hmm. but it felt like this very like adult responsible thing to do to go into like to go to a meeting. And Mm -hmm. so I kind of dug it. I, I, you know, took my, I got a Pete's coffee and I went to the meeting in the financial district in San Francisco and I went for, you know, but I also went in with these very, very different ideas and also kind of calling bullshit on some of the stuff and just believing that it didn't necessarily work, but I needed to be in that room for some reason. Mm-hmm. And so, so I had a bad experience in it and I, you know, I tried it. I, I would, you know, I went to, I went to a meeting every day that first week and then I tried it, I would say for about a month. And I just, for me, it scared, you know, it was like hearing the thing. If you don't do this, you're going to drink again. And I didn't need that type of influence in order to not drink again. I didn't need a scare tactic to tell me if I didn't go to a meeting, then I was going to drink again. What Mm -hmm. that ended up doing was it started to kind of plant the seed in me of doubt, of thinking that I was fooling myself and thinking that the only, like, it was just, it started to plant the seed of doubt that I was doing it wrong. And then that, you know, people started asking me if I, you know, if I was going to get a sponsor and telling me if I didn't get a sponsor, you know, it was just this very, like, very, very, very regimented. Yeah. And it, and that scared me. It was like, I just, I, how do I say it? Other than to say, I felt very judged. And mm-hmm. like people were calling bullshit when they didn't know all these other things that I was doing in the background to support myself and my recovery. Yeah. And so mm-hmm. I, you know, I had kind of a moment where I was in Washington, D.C. and a girl that I had met in the rooms just, you know, called me and was like, 
being straight with me and told me that I was going to drink again if I didn't start going to meetings. And I'd had it with hearing that and like, I just, I didn't want to be scared about my, I didn't like being scared about staying sober was not my jam Mm -hmm. if I didn't do something that was. And so I, that was it. And I have to say, you know, if we're talking about how I felt about AA, I hated it. And I had an experience in it where I went with some girlfriends and, you know, almost, you know, like six, seven months after that call in DC. And we had a confrontation with a woman who said I was going to drink again. I mean, it was kind of like, for me, I really felt and how I see it today was I kind of had to have those experiences. Like those were experiences that were perfectly aligned for me in order for me to actually trust myself. You know, that's one of the things that I think in addiction, a lot of people are warned against, which is trusting themselves. And that is a really scary place to go for me because I, well, I don't think I'm God. I do trust myself and I do trust what's right for me. I know what feels right and I know what feels wrong. Mm -hmm. And it felt wrong. And for me, like my experience in AA was truly, I believe it was meant to help me stand in my own space of saying, this works for me. And it doesn't look like what works for everyone else. And it doesn't look like what the court system says. And it doesn't look like what 90% of treatment modalities say. It doesn't look like what all these other people say, but it works for me. And I'm going to stand up for that. And so that was what it pushed me to. And I hated AA at first because of that experience. And I felt it was a bad play. I like my first mission was to keep people from going to AA. <laughs> you were like on a mission like, evangelizing. <laughs> like, watch out, especially women. Like, do not go there. They will break you down. It, that was my first like my first was like I, all of my early blog posts in that time, I got to go back and find them were basically to Terry A and who asshole and to, you know, and then as things go, it just like, for me, like I, over time came to this realization that like, first of all, it, it's just like, there is no one right way. And just as much as it didn't work for me, it does work for other people. And so I've, softened on that quite a bit. And I value it for what it is, especially, you know, since there's no other thing that's out there that provides what it does, which is a place for people to come together and share in their stories and build community. It's been a long road to like honoring that it works for other people. And so today where I'm at with it is I think it's great. And I think if it works for you, if it calls to, I think everyone should give it a try. Yeah. Because I think that we should be able to try things without feeling like if it doesn't work for us, there's something wrong with us. I think it's a good, anyway, mm-hmm. I'm going off Well, I mean, it would be great if you had a stronger opinion about it. I mean, come on, Holly. <laughs> 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 no, I love it. I love that about you. And I just, I'm, I mean, I'm with you. I, you know, I talked about it in a previous episode that AA was, AA was all I knew. And I think for a lot of people, if not all people, that's kind of all any of us know. And, you know, I had a very close family member who'd gotten sober in the program and had gotten sober successfully. So it was an easy transition for me to make. And I had also grown up with a traditional kind of, you know, Christian background. So it was easy for me to accept the God aspect of it and the higher power and things like that. So it wasn't, it wasn't hard for me to step into those rooms at all. And I think that what got uncomfortable for me is like, is what you were saying. It's this, it's the regimentedness of it. And then when I pushed back, I got called out on it saying like, that's my ego and I better watch out for that. And I hate, hated the term character defect. I was like, yeah. 
Um, <laughs> you well, know, just, because we've been doing, we know what, I mean, hello, we're women that live in America. We know all of our characters. We know that. how to beat ourselves up. <laughs> yeah. It's yeah. like, come on. And, and too, you know, it's like, that was the work I was doing. Like as my profession was helping women be more compassionate with themselves. And then here I am, I'm supposed to be admitting like, you know, all the ways that I'm wrong. And, you know, right. not that I'm saying that I should still walk around being selfish and entitled, which by the way, are my quote unquote character defects. But <laughs> yeah, it's, it is like, yeah, I try to work on those every day to not be that way. But it's like, have some compassion for anyway. I mean, and the anonymity factor for me, like, of course, I don't think that I should be able to go run out and tell the world, you know, that Holly Whitaker is sober and, and you know, Jane Doe is sober and struggling. But it was weird that I was encouraged to not talk about my own recovery publicly. And I'm just yeah. like, how can I not? Like, yeah. For me, given, you know, I am someone who is like you, who I can't keep quiet about things. Like it is part of my blood and bones to speak out for those that have a harder time speaking for themselves, I guess. So I just, that's like one of the biggest parts that I couldn't be with. And it was very confusing and I was hearing different things about what I could and couldn't do. And so now it's, I have kind of a neutral feeling about it. I do think people should try it. Like you were saying, and don't just go to one meeting because the first one you go to might suck and there might be some creep that's hitting on you or, you know, you're just going to get those meetings where you're going to look around and like hear all these stories of people who hit some seriously bad rock bottoms. And it's easy for you to say, well, that's not me. I don't belong here. But yeah, I just invite people to give it a try and see what happens for you because you might love it. Well, I think it's, I love, I encourage my clients to, you know, when I used to do one-on-one coaching, I would encourage my clients to go to meetings and I would do it for a couple of reasons. One, I would say, because you don't know what works for you until you try it. But also, it's a really good practice of being able to go into something and take what works for you and leave what doesn't, Mm -hmm. right? It's a good, for me, I think it's a great strength building exercise to be able to go in and see something else and also be able to say whether or not something works for you. I do want to say there's a couple things. One of the things that you said a couple times, which is regiment. And there is a really interesting, one of my favorite books is called Integral Recovery. It's by John Dupuy. It's basically taking integral life practice, which is Ken Wilber concept, or I don't know how to say it. It's taking Ken Wilber's work and putting it into a framework that helps people, that is meant to help guide people out of addiction. And one of the really interesting parts of it is it talks about something called spiral dynamics, probably my favorite part in the entire book. And, you know, addiction is devolutionary. We devolve, right? Mm -hmm. We go back and we go back into, we go back maturity wise, right? We stop growing up and we actually, you know, become, well, I don't even know how to say what the right place. We devolve. Well, yeah, well, we just, we devolve. And Mm -hmm. so there is this entry point that where people need that structure and people do need that regimen, mm-hmm. whether it's AA or not, that is something that is very appealing and helpful at the beginning of this. But not all people devolve to the same place, number one. And number two, there is like spiral dynamics is something that I can't really get into on this call because it's, but the idea is that when you start to evolve, you do potentially start to evolve past the structures that really truly helped you in the first place. So you will hear a lot of people that have said, like, AA saved my life, and I needed that structure, and I needed that experience. But then at some point, I grew beyond, you will hear, it's a common thing that I hear from a lot of people that don't use AA anymore, which Mm -hmm. is that it stopped serving me in the same way it did in early recovery. That's exactly Um, what happened to me. Yeah. Now that you say that, that's exactly what happened to me. 
Yeah. And it was like, and that it is great at first. And, you know, like to be able to have some sort of structure and also have access to that community that you don't have access to anywhere else. Mm-hmm. It's starting to happen. You are starting to, you know, there's smart recovery and there's, but there is no thing. I mean, and, and, you know, addiction or not, there's, it's one of the most successful organizations in the world and one of the most prolific organizations in the world. You can find a meeting anywhere in any city, in any country. It's just, you know, and it's a place where you can go and you can meet people that see you and understand what you've been through. And you can't replicate that. And so anyway, and it's free and it's free. (laughs) Right. And so I think it's like one of those things where you, you know, like there are definitely good parts to it. There are also parts where we have to remain true to ourselves, right? We do. We have to remain true to ourselves and works for us. And there are parts like for someone like me, it, it was not a helpful, it was a helpful experience into coming into my own skin it was not a helpful experience in terms of stabilizing my, God, I'm at a loss for words this morning. It just wasn't, it wasn't a great part of my, it was not part of my path in the way that it is intended to be part of one's path. Mm -hmm. I'll say that. Well, what do you, tell us what you do now to stay sober. I know that's a loaded question and you probably talk for an hour on that, but give us the highlights. Well, first of all, I remain involved in the community and I think that's a really important thing. Community Um, of recovery? Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like I, I mean, my company, you know, every, my company and my life is built around it. And so I think that's a really important thing. Most of my friends, not all of my friends, but most of my friends are in, you know, in recovery from something. And so having those relationships, I think is one of the cornerstones of it. So that's one big thing. Another thing is I do yoga every day, meditation mm-hmm. every day. I take care of myself. I have been in a period for the last, it'll be almost, it's about three and a half years since I stopped drinking and four years since I started on this path. But I still am just really sweet and kind to myself. And I still like am in this cocoon phase of it, I would say, of where I'm just allowing myself, I really allow myself the room to grow and to spend time on my path. I get enough sleep. That's a very big thing for me. Mm -hmm. I'm continued. Like I'm always, I always have my nose in a book on something spiritual. I use Course in Miracles. I love Marianne Williamson's work. This summer I got into Mickey Singer's work. I always have my nose in some sort of like inspirational, spiritual text. What else do I, I mean, like, it's just one of those things. I mean, it really is, you know, you have to, And this sounds daunting to some people, but it's true. Like my life was dedicated to getting out of hell. And I, you know, and the way that I structure my life is it's not like my life is built around recovery. I don't say that I'm in long-term recovery. I just, I don't, it's, I honestly just say I'm, you know, like I'm living my life to, if anything, to recover myself. I'm living my life to live my life as healthy and happy as I possibly can. And so the decisions that go into what my life is are always from a place of, is this taking care of myself? Is this the right thing for me to do? And so that means that from saying, I say no a lot, Mm -hmm. you know, that means that I, yes, you better believe I'm selfish a lot of the time and not selfish. And I'm taking this all for myself, but selfish. And I make sure that I take care of myself first, because if I don't take care of myself, I can't take care of other people. I ask for help when I need help. I drink a ton of water. I, you know, I mean, it's like, it's, I'm, you know, I use relationships. I use everything as practice in my life. I use everything as some sort of fuel towards my growth, you know? And so it's, I, it could go on and on and on and on and on and on, but it's just a matter of like, on this path, you just, you have to address all areas of your life, right? You do. And it's just a matter of kind of, for me, 
building a life that is consistently, that I make sure is built in order to enable and promote my growth. Yes. A million times. Yes. Do you, I'm super curious. Do you ever feel like you have that voice that says like you could just have one glass of wine? No, it's like the voice that says you could just smoke pot and get away with it. Okay. (laughs) I never want to drink again. Alcohol disgusts me and the thought of it makes me ill. I have Mm -hmm. had times like I would just on our podcast that we did this week, I was like when I was in Italy last year and the guy I was seeing came to Italy and broke up with me. And in that moment, I looked at his bottle. He had a craft of wine and I was just like, I missed the drama of chugging a whole bottle of wine, you know, like, (laughs) um, but I don't miss being drunk at all. I don't miss anything about drinking. I don't miss anything about drinking. Pot is different for me because it's like, and so yeah, sometimes like I was, when I was in Italy this summer, I was staying over at a guy's house and he was like, oh, I'm so sorry. Did you want a joint? And I was like, no, but it was just like that moment of thinking I could have a joint and like, then no. Yes, but no. No, no. Cause then it goes like, for me, that's just like, that's it. That's it. It's pot is the same as alcohol. It's the same as cigarettes. It's the same yeah, as anything else. It's, that's it. I've thought about that too. Like when somebody recently was talking about that one of their family members is very ill and they were going to try to get medicinal marijuana. And I was thinking to myself, yeah, I'm such an addict. I was like, oh, if I got sick, (laughs) I'm like, what if I got some illness? Like not a bad one. Like not nothing, nothing terminal, like just bad enough though, where I could get a prescription. I know. I know. Well, I've told, I have told myself if I make it to 90, then I can smoke all the pot. I want want that pack too. I know. I have work to do here. I mean, that's like, it's as plain and simple as that. I have work to do here. And if I do that, then it's, then I don't get to do the work that I do. And so it's a matter of, I mean, it's a, it's a pretty big call Mm -hmm. and so it's not worth it. And so yeah, with pot a little bit more, but not much, it's not, it like, it probably has happened about five times where I've been like, I could smoke pot. And then I'm like, no, you cannot smoke pot. And it's it's funny. It's all been in Italy. It's all been in Italy and it's all been because I'm in this like foreign land and I'm like, well, nobody knows me, but yeah, no, it's, Thank you for sharing that and being honest. We need to wrap up soon, but before we do, I want to I want you to tell people about so first everyone, if you the show notes are at yourkickasslife.com forward slash R four and we will link to the books that Holly mentioned and her blog and of course tell us about hip sobriety and what that is and how it supports people in recovery. Yeah, so it started as a blog just to provide tools and you know a bit of my story to show people how to really build holistic recovery. It's either a complement or an alternative to AA, but it really started as curation almost. And then I started coaching people, and eventually it just turned into a what I call hip sobriety school, which is now you know at this point it's an eight week course that takes people through. It's it's really truly a school that takes people through understanding how to build recovery and successful recovery. And at the same time, how to implement throughout the course practical steps in order to start to change their psychology around drinking, to start to essentially start making the moves towards sobriety or strengthening sobriety. You know, it, I have people from, you know, that are just barely considering quitting drinking to people who are, who quit within the school to people who've been sober for a few months to people that have been sober for a few years. And so it's really meant to give you the tools that have helped me not just with 
you know, alcohol and pot, but also with cigarettes and also with food, Mm -hmm. because in order for us to really, truly transcend all this stuff, we have to look at the whole, we have to look at the whole and most modalities that are out there, just look at a fraction, either look at spirituality or psychology or physiology or existentialism. They look at these bits and pieces. This brings it all together and kind of points you to how to start to build a life that you don't want to escape from. That's so important. We could have talked for hours. I mean, because every time you answer a question, you touch on something else that I want to ask you about, and that's escapism and all the things we do to do that. So I'm just going to have to have you on for next season because you are a wealth of information. And you guys, (laughs) if you head on over to Holly's blog, I think that what had happened is I started, I read your piece, your series that you did on AA that was, I think that that's when it was like a little bit angry. That must have been when you were in your phase, you're evangelizing against AA. (laughs) I wasn't, it was never meant to, I was actually at that point, it was, it probably had an edge to it, but I do think, I mean, I am critical of parts of AA for sure. I mean, there is absolutely no question about that. I have criticisms of AA as an organization and as, you know, like when one of the pieces is, you know, looking at the world through AA colored glasses, like I don't agree with the label alcoholic. Mm-hmm. One of my pieces is, hi, my name is Holly, my name, and I'm not an alcoholic and kind of debunks why, we, you know, so there is, I'm, I'm very, very clear on the parts that I don't agree with. It doesn't mean that I don't agree that people should try it out because to be honest, no, here's the thing. No one has it right. No one has it right. I don't have it right. Tommy Rosen doesn't have it right. Gabor Mate doesn't have, you know, all of us have bits and pieces, but I've never listened to one. I've never heard of one program that I'm like, yes, that is it. That's the silver bullet. That's it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Everyone has something that can be, everyone has Mm -hmm. in every program and everyone has something we can be critical of. And so, and 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 that's the same for AA. And I love that you wrote a piece about how it could be reformed. And what I wanted just to tell people is like, be prepared to just devour a lot of information because you just have some, you have really great resources and your blog is really laid out really well. Like, let's just talk logistics for a second. Like it's easy <laughs> to just, to just click on different things and read what you want to read. And I love the posts that you have about the books that have helped you. And so people stop what you're doing and go over to hipsobriety.com and check out the school. If it's something that, cause I believe you're doing it again in January. So can they get on the wait list over there? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Just click on coaching and it'll take you to everything you need. Awesome. All right, everybody, don't forget yourkickasslife.com forward slash R4. And thank you so much for being here, Holly. And thank you. It's such a great story. conversation. I really appreciate it. Yeah, yeah. I'm, just, I'm super grateful for all of these conversations and hearing stories. And the thing is, you guys, is that even if your story doesn't look just exactly like Holly's, I'm sure a lot of how you are feeling can be really this is something that you can relate to. And that's what I want you to listen for in all of these stories. And so until next time, I will see you out in cyberspace. Bye-bye. <laughs>